You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. Well, if you have your Bible, let's make our way to Romans chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 18 through 25 today. If you have one of those pew Bibles under the seat or somewhere around you, it is on page 997, I think. I'm kind of winging it on that, I'm guessing. Somewhere around there. Or, if you don't know how to find the book of Romans, there's a couple ways to do it. You can go to the table of contents at the front or just literally hand it to somebody next to you and say, would you please turn my Bible to Romans? And I'm sure they'd be happy to help you get you there so we can read God's word together. Romans 1, 18 through 25. God's word says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, so their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served what has been created instead of the Creator, who is praised forever. Amen. Lord, we have a difficult word here from your word. God, we have a reality before us that we see with our own eyes in the world. We wouldn't have to read it from Scripture to see it, but your Scripture shows us its truth and what is there. And God, it is in this Bible for us for a reason, to correct and to rebuke, but also to encourage and to edify, to teach up. So Lord, I ask that you would do that this morning with this word, and you would help us to see why it is a blessing that we have such a difficult word before us. And Lord, I humbly ask that you would help me to preach this straight, not veering to the right or to the left, but in a way that would feed and edify and build up your flock. God, I thank you for what we have before us this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're concerned by what we just read about how the sermon is going to go, rest assured, so am I. So we're in this together. Paul has shared his greeting. He sent this letter to the church in Rome. He shared his greeting. He said, hey, here's what's going on. And then he told us why he's not ashamed of the gospel and why it motivates him and moves him. And then what he's going to do is spend 12 chapters explaining and teaching and defining that gospel. He's going to show us what it is. But from what we have, from where this is beginning in these few verses we just read, we know that this presentation of the gospel starts in a very dark place. I mean, what we just heard is, is dark. Look at Romans 1.18 again. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against godlessness and unrighteousness 
of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Humanity has a real problem. Probably don't need to read Scripture to figure that out, but Scripture tells us here, humanity has a very real problem. The wrath of God is against humanity. And it all started in the Garden of Eden. It started back in Genesis 3. But before that, God gave Adam some very simple instructions. What were they? Do you remember? Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on earth. But there was this one thing that they were not allowed to do. That's Genesis 2.16. The Lord God commanded the man, Adam, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on that day you eat from it, you will certainly die. That's Genesis 2.16. And what's happening by the time we reach uh, Genesis chapter 3, just a few verses later? What are they doing? Oh, they're eating from the very thing God said don't eat from. So that didn't take long. Now here's what's curious. Adam sinned. He disobeyed God. That's sin. But he didn't turn to dust and go to the grave that day. Did he die, like God said? Did God just make some empty promises and not keep his word? What happened? Well, Adam did die. And because he died that day, his physical death, hundreds of years later, was really insignificant. It was almost meaningless. See, there's two kinds of deaths. There's a physical death, and there is a spiritual death. Okay, and you need to hear this. We do not physically die because we sinned. We physically die because Adam sinned. The death of our body, the, the, the crumbling and the breaking down of our physical body has to do with the consequences of Adam's sin, which is the fall, which is the curse that was put on the earth and all of creation. Okay, that's why we have thorns and thistles. That's why we have suffering and toil. We eat by the sweat of our brow and our bodies return to dust. You can read about that in Genesis 3, 17 through 19. This is also why that when we're redeemed by Jesus and all of those sins are paid for, we still physically die. That's why. And then we wait in anticipation for our perfected body that we're reunited with in the resurrection. This is also why animals physically die. Because animals don't sin, except for cats. And <laughs> trees die. Animals die. Did you know even the rocks are eroding over time? Everything in creation, because of Adam's sin, dies. That's the effect of Adam's sin and the curse. It's also why Adam didn't physically die that day. His physical suffering, his toil, his labor, how he would eat from the sweat of the brow, the labor pains for women were only just getting started that day. So he had a long time to labor 
and to toil and to get creaky knees and to get an achy back and feel his body falling apart as the effects of the cancerous power of sin in the world. But he did spiritually die that day. I think we understand physical death. Most of us in this room have a pretty good handle of what physical death is, but what is spiritual death? What really is that? Well, when Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, or John 5, 25, or Luke 15, 24, which is the story of the prodigal son, refer to people who are physically alive but spiritually dead. They use a specific Greek word, nekros. Nekros, it means corpse. That's even referred to as the prodigal son. He was a corpse, but he's returned. Nekros. And the idea here is that a corpse can't do anything, especially move toward God. He can't praise God. A corpse can't serve God. A corpse can't pray to God. A corpse cannot love God. Physically alive people who are spiritually dead are zombie corpses. I think that's why we have such a fascination in this world with zombies. Because it kind of reflects a little bit of our spiritual state if we're not in Christ. Now, imagine for a minute if two zombie corpses were to, to get together and have a baby, the baby would also be a zombie corpse, right? Which is exactly what we see happen to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 5. Two zombie corpses got together and had a child. And it says he made man in his image, Adam's image, zombie corpse image. Seth was a zombie corpse. Ephesians 2.1 teaches us that we are all necros, dead corpses, in our sin. And we're born spiritually dead. We start in this state. Basically, we're spiritually stillborn. That's how we begin. Therefore, the wrath of God that we just read in verse 18 is God's just punishment against Adam when Adam broke God's command. The command was, but you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on that day you eat from it, you will certainly die. That's the wrath against that sin, and that same wrath, that same just judgment is on every one of Adam's stillborn zombie babies. Every one of us. Adam's sin. His disobedience. It cursed the entire earth, which we still suffer through, redeemed or otherwise. And it also cursed every child ever conceived. Romans 5, 12 says this. Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. Adam's sin was imputed on every single human being. We get the benefit of that. Every person now follows in the footsteps of Adam. Right? We sin. It's our nature. We have sin upon us. We have that judgment upon us. It's a part of the tainted nature to which we are born into that we got from our original parents, Adam and Eve. Romans 3 tells us that we're all sinners and that we've all sinned and that we're all under the same punishment of God which goes all the way back to Genesis 2.26. For on that day you eat from it, you will certainly die. And it carries forward to our disobedience every time we don't trust 
and obey God every single time. So now I hope you see humanity has a very real problem. We will all stand before the wrath of God in this state. To fix the problem, humanity also has a plan. Humanity's plan is to create idols. That's their plan. I got an idea. Let's just create some idols. We see in uh, Romans 1.23 that they made images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. They made images. Now, we sometimes get a little confused in our day when we hear the word idol. We either think American Idol, which is probably a bad title for a show, or you know, we think of like idols, trinkets. We think of idolatry. We usually are thinking of like a paganism or other world religions that we see around the world. Idols might be statues or carvings that look like people or birds or animals or reptiles or something like that. They might be that. When I lived in Rose Park, I used to go out for a walk and I'd walk past a giant Buddha statue. Huge. Made of concrete. And often, there would be bowls of fruit under the statue. Because people who made this statue also worshipped this statue. That's an idol. When you go to um, you know, your favorite sushi restaurant or your Chinese restaurant, and it has a little Buddha there, and people are putting money there. That's an idol. People are worshipping it with putting their money on the Buddha. An idol is anything that takes the place of God to serve as the object of our dedication or our devotion, or our worship, or to receive, we want, provision or blessing from, or identity, or security, or salvation. Anything that does that. And spiritually dead people, here that we read and what we see in the world, spiritually dead people are trying to replace the living God, suppressing that truth, with the God of their own making. I think we understand this. I really, I really think we do because most of us are masters of idol manufacturing. We know how to make these things, don't we? We did it before we were saved, and sadly, we still have this in us, and we do it after we're saved. John Calvin famously said, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. That's what our heart is. It just produces these idols. And unfortunately, idols have gotten very sophisticated in our day, haven't they? Most are like, I don't worship idols. I haven't made a little thing carved out of wood and bow down to it. I don't do that. But our idols are far more sophisticated and sneaky than that, aren't they? Even the good things we get, the blessings we receive from God can become idols when we replace God with those things, when they become the thing we put above God and seek our identity in, our provision from, our Uh, object of our worship, those things become the idols in our life. And let's just think about some of those for a minute. I'm just going to name some things that can and often become idols in our lives. Let's just start with people. Other people can often very easily become idols, either famous people. You know, we everything that person says or does, I'm going to worship this person in some way. This is my favorite human on the face of the planet. Or self-proclaimed prophets or gurus. And people go, hey, this, is the, this person is where I'm going to find all my hope and all my answers and everything's great. Or entertainment, the places we go to escape the world because the world's too hard, so I'm going to just fall into entertainment anytime I'm having a bad day before I'm leaning into God. Or sports or all those things that just consume our mind 
for the sake of security, identity, provision, comfort. How about money? Money might be a real doozy, huh? For many of us, the steeple of our life has a big dollar sign on the top. Because it's where we find our safety, where we find our provision, and we put it above God's. If we don't have it, we're so worried that we we fight for it, we battle for it, we worship it, the management of it. We become priests to our money idol, and we manage it, and we listen to podcasts and radio shows to just get better and better and better and better about it because we've actually replaced God with money. How about career? If any of you have ever really pressed into career, you know what that can do to you. Politics? Let's put our hope in how we vote, who's in office, what the Supreme Court is doing, what my perceived governmental rights are. Let's fight and battle and worship and hope and find all provision from that above God. Sexuality and sexual freedom, that's a popular one today, isn't it? Food? I will tell you, I am an emotional eater from time to time. And that sounds just like, eh, whatever. But when you're having a bad day, and instead of turning to God in prayer and looking for hope and being encouraged by His Word, you just eat a sleeve of Oreos, right? <laughs> That's an idol. Where is my hope in life and death? Well, my, my idol in food is going to cause my death if I'm not careful. That's an idol, and some of us struggle with that. How about our hobbies, the things we love? Sometimes it's, I love this in my hobby, so I'm going to have more and more and more and more items of my hobby, and therefore I have the biggest and the best in all the toys. More, can't even use all these toys, right? Could that be where we find our hope? The environment is a popular one today. I'm going to say some things that many of you are not going to like, but if the environment completely goes to hell in a handbasket, and we have all the problems that are predicted of the environment, we still have God. We still have God. Now, does that mean we should destroy our environment? No, but God has to be first. How about our own pride and ambition? Man, that can be tough. I'm the smartest guy in the room. I'm the most important person. I don't make mistakes. Everything I do is awesome. Everybody likes my Facebook posts, whatever. How about power? Having the ability to have a say or make decisions. Or education. Any of you ever struggle with idolatry? That's me at times. If I don't get the A, I cry. Like, that's not right. And it's also embarrassing that I just shared that. (laughs) Here's a real tough one. How about when we make our children idols or our grandchildren or family? When we put family above God and we say that's the most important thing, we have just replaced the truth of God with a lie. How about ministry? Now, many of you are not in a full-time vocational ministry, but you have ministry. Oh, well, that's what I've always done. That's who I am. My identity is wrapped up in fill in the blank. That can be a real tricky one because it seems so good because it seems like it's from God, but there are many pastors even There are many people serving in ministry in different ways, deacon, chairman, whoever, who are saying, this is more important now than God. I know better. It's amazing that even ministry can become an idol. I want to ask you, what is God whispering in your ear right now? What's kind of rolling through your mind, stirring in your heart? What idols might you be manufacturing from your idol factory? That's humanity's plan. Let's make some idols and worship them. They'll help us. 
Great plan, right? Wrong. Idols don't fix this problem. Let's see how this plays out from Scripture. Go back and look at verse 21. I'm going to read 21 through 25. Okay, as a result, before this, as a result, they're without an excuse. Here we go, 21. For though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or show gratitude. Well, that's a problem. Instead, their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. When we're producing idols, we're just demonstrating that we're fools with worthless thinking who don't honor, respect, love, and cherish God. That's how that goes. That's a terrible plan. But that's what we do, isn't it? That's what humanity does. And, and there's another problem here. Besides just how bad this goes, <clears throat> it's also an additional violation of the commands God has given us. <clears throat> Excuse me. It violates the first, the second, and the third commandments of the Big Ten, of the Ten Commandments. And what are the first, second, and third? I hope you know, but if you don't, you can find them in Exodus 20. Verse 3 gives us the first one. Do not have other gods besides me. Verse 4 gives us the second one. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. And the third one in verse 5. Do not bow down in worship to them, the idols, and do not serve them. Why? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for their father's iniquity to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, right now, you might have a little argument rolling around in your head that's very popular in Christianity. The argument says something like this. The Old Testament doesn't apply to me anymore. Right? I, I, I'm a New Testament Christian. In Old Testament law, New Testament grace, that's what people will say. We don't need to worry about that. Well, first of all, it's a terrible and incorrect understanding of the gospel and what Jesus did to fulfill that law, not erase it, but fulfill it on the cross. And also, by the way, Jesus affirmed the Ten Commandments. You need to be fully aware, if you hold to this argument that it doesn't apply and you only need to have Jesus, Jesus says it applies. Here's how. The Ten Commandments are repeated word for word in Deuteronomy. You can read that in Deuteronomy 5, 1 through 21. And then the next chapter, just a couple sentences later, a single summary command is offered in Deuteronomy 6, 5. And then a teacher of the law comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus quotes the summary verse, Deuteronomy 6.5. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. That summarizes the first four of the commandments, which includes the three we just read. And then incidentally, he also says the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, which summarizes commandments five through 10. How about that? He's affirmed the Ten Commandments. We cannot get off the hook on this one. It is wrong to make idols. Loving and trusting or serving anything or anyone before and above God is a violation of God's command and will incur God's wrath. And it will not save us. 
And it will not supply what we think it will. This is why we deserve to be under that wrath. The hard part is we're just as tempted as the world around us to make, Christ, to make uh, idols, aren't we? Even as Christians. But we should know better. We've tasted and we've seen that the Lord is good and that He provides and that His promises are true and He's the Savior. We should know that. So I beg you, please, loved ones, church, if you're making idols in your life or if even just now we're sitting here, you're starting to think, maybe that's an idol in my life, would you please kill it? Kill it. Don't have idols in your life. And shut the factory down. Let's turn to God. Let's turn to God. It will go so much better for us. Now, I admit this passage of Scripture is really dark. We read it. We don't necessarily like it. It sounds harsh. Our world certainly doesn't like it, but it's the truth. And it used to be, at least in my lifetime, I remember a time when spiritually dead people actually championed and argued for their idols as a solution to this dark reality. It seems like now they just deny the darkness altogether. There's just no darkness. There's no problem. Because if I can, if I can say there's not even a problem, then there's no need for salvation, and therefore there's no need for God. Let's just fight against the darkness. It's not dark. It's not a problem. I'm not surprised when I see that. I'm never surprised when I see it. Here's why. Every time I see it, when I see it on the news, when I hear people speak it, talk it out, when I watch what that happens, it only solidifies the truth of the Bible in my conviction and in my mind and in my heart. Because Romans 1 shows us that this will happen. It says, don't be surprised. This is what's happening. And Romans 1 gives us the how and the why. Look at it with me again, 18 through 20. Just look back at verse 18 again. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of uh, of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's predicting it's happening. We see it happening. Since what can be known about God is evident among, among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes... That his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without an excuse. So I'm not surprised when I see it in the world. Now at this point, in this moment, from just what we've read, it probably feels hopeless and dark. You go, what in the world? Why would we we go there? Well, part of it is because this is Paul's argument, and Paul's argument actually goes for a whole bunch of chapters, and he's just barely getting started. So unless you want to stay here till tomorrow, as we work through all of it, we're going to just start with this first part. We're just going to start there. And if we were going to be really true to exegetical preaching, where the message of the text that's selected dictates the complete message and all the points that we're making, I wouldn't be able to go any further. I would just have to leave us in this dark place except for one thing. One thing, there's a little tiny glimmer of the gospel in what we've just read today. It's shining through the crack. It's just something coming through. Do you see it? Look at the very last part of verse 25. It's talking about the creator who they've 
they, they're not worshiping. And then it says the creator who is praised forever. Amen. If there is praise for the true creator, then there must be people doing the praising. These people didn't exchange the truth of God for a lie. But if we're all born spiritually dead, and dead people can't praise God, how did they become spiritually alive? Just as there are two deaths, a physical death and a spiritual death, there are two births. There are two kinds of births, a physical birth and a spiritual birth. It's interesting. Physically, we go from, physically, birth to death. But spiritually, we go from death to birth. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that crazy? That is if we're born again. And nobody ever spiritually dies again. You start dead and come alive, or you just stay dead. So if you are alive in Christ, you will never, ever spiritually die. Remember the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus in John chapter 3? Do you remember that? This very smart priestly guy comes, and he wants to talk to Jesus, and Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless someone is born again, born again, he's talking about that spiritual birth, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You can read about that in John 3, 3. He's talking about spiritual birth. And Nicodemus struggles with this for a minute and asks some silly questions about going back in the womb and all silly, because he's not understanding that there's two births, physical and spiritual. And then finally, Nicodemus asks, how can someone be born again? Turn with me over to John. If you're using that pew Bible, it's page 943. How can somebody be born again? What a vital and critical question to ask Jesus, the Savior of the world. We're going to pick up Jesus' answer in verse 14. John chapter 3, verse 14. It says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. This is Jesus telling Nicodemus. Just like that story you know. Back in the Exodus. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness... So the Son of Man must be lifted up. He's talking about being lifted up on the cross. So that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through Him. Now hear this, anyone who believes in him is not condemned, okay? No death sentence, no condemnation. Anyone who believes in him is not facing the wrath of God. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. How about that? How about that? How do we be born again? Believe in Jesus. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only way that a person can be saved from the wrath of God. It's the only way. It's the only solution to humanity's problem. It's the only way someone can go from spiritual death to spiritual life. There is no other way. So if you are born again, 
you are spiritually alive, then I hope, I hope you see how important it is that you praise and worship God, that you would join those mentioned here in Romans, that the Creator would be praised forever. I hope you see how important it is. I hope you see how important it is that the light of Christ that is in you needs to shine in this darkness to proclaim the hope, to proclaim where salvation is found, to proclaim that there can be life in Christ, that dead bones may rise. I hope you see it. I hope you feel it. And I hope you will praise the Creator forever. I mean, praise Him. Because without Him, where would we be? And if you're not born again, okay, you're not alive in Christ, you don't profess that He is your Savior, you're trying to make sense of this, then I want to appeal to you right now. Right when this service is over. I want you to come right down to the front, have a seat, we will sit and we will talk, and we will say, this is what it looks like to be born again. In fact, if you're feeling that, you can come down right now. You'll be first in line. If you're watching online, reach out to us right now. Pull out your phone. Text 385-368-6665. Say, what must I do to be saved? Let's start this conversation because we want to see you go from death to life and never die again. Emails, reach out to us. Come here. I don't want you to wait till next week, but come next week. This is the gospel, and it is important. And if that is you, you're not born again. That is your only action step because corpses don't do anything else. It's the only way you go from death to life. So now, in light of what we have read, how glorious is the gospel of Jesus Christ? because it raises dead bones to eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that I couldn't do anything when I was dead, a corpse, no life, incapable, and yet you give life. Like you breathe life into Adam, you breathe life into us. You save you do this work, and I am so grateful for it. Lord, may we be people who are grateful for this salvation and praise you forever. And Lord, may we kill the idols in our life that we have no hope or trust in anything but you. We know these things can be good, and many of them are, and they're blessings from you, God, but I, I pray you, we would keep them in the right position, secondary to you. Lord, for those who don't know you, I pray you would bring dead bones to life. That we would celebrate that. We would see that symbolized in baptism, going into the grave, dead, coming out alive. Lord, I thank you that we will never, ever die if you've raised us from death to life. Physically, just a pause until we're reunited with our physical body. But spiritually, we will live forever and we get to live with you. We get to be with you. I praise you for that, God. I thank you for that. And Lord, I know some in here are suffering from the effects of Adam's sin in the fall. Be it cancer, issues of growing old, bodily injury, pain, suffering, strife, working, laboring, toil, the sweat of our brow, pain and childbearing, thorns, thistles, 
God, please comfort them. Please carry them. Please bless them and help them through that as they know that soon enough, Lord, all that will be at an end and we will be with you for an uncountable amount of days, worshiping and praising you forever. It's in Jesus' name. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.